Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 93. Today's episode is all about how to stop self-sabotage. Feelings are temporary. They are states, but they're not traits. They're things that kind of are like waves in the ocean. They can come and go. And so when it's difficult or impossible to change your thoughts, then distress tolerance skills can be used to help you cope and survive during a crisis. So it's sort of like turning the mind or using opposite action, smiling anyway, even when you're feeling distressed. It's all these things that take less than 10 seconds to do. What's quick and what's not going to engage sort of your cognitive stress even more. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. Have you ever had a big project deadline that you knew was important, only to find yourself watching an entire marathon of The Bachelorette instead? Or you worked really hard for weeks to lose that five pounds and then decided that the best way to reward yourself would be to eat an entire tub of ice cream. Or maybe you were in a relationship that was going really great, but you just kept picking fights. Yeah, these are all little ways that we self-sabotage. Self-sabotage can be really hard to spot at first because, you know, it has a big name. The first time I really heard this term, I envisioned some chaotic teenager deliberately trying to ruin her life and everyone around her. But now I know that this chaotic teenager exists inside of all of us on some level. And that bitch needs boundaries. I wanted an episode on this in particular because I used to be the queen of self-sabotage. From picking fights in my good relationships to diving headfirst into bad ones. Or one time, I got a promotion at my job and then I just stopped showing up for four days. And then there's bulimia. That is a pretty obvious form of self-sabotage, I'd say. I'm like telling my body every day, hey, here's a bunch of food. Psych, you can't keep it. Well, now I have gotten my life together in a ton of ways, but that little chaotic teenager still throws fits every now and then. And I've especially noticed it after something really good happens. It's like I'm on a high and I've got to bring myself to a low. And thankfully, the ways it manifests now are a lot less severe than they used to be. Three cheers for growth, right? For example, late last year, I went to this event. I made all these great contacts that could really help my career. Even had a coffee date with one, and then I never followed up with anyone. Following up would have been an easy enough thing to do, but looking back, there was some sort of fear of my own success holding me back. And even today, something great will happen, and still my first instinct is to drink all the wine to celebrate. Not some of the wine, all of the wine. But now I know how to handle it. Well, mostly. So after today's episode, you will too. We are talking to Dr. Judy Ho. She's an award-winning clinical psychologist, 
tenured professor, and TV personality. And we'll be looking at self-sabotage to help us answer two vital questions. Why do we do it? And how do we stop? She's going to give us some proven strategies grounded in science and therapy and practical tools to teach you how to identify your triggers and modify your thoughts and behaviors so you can stop the cycle. Three key things we will learn are why humans are predisposed to self-sabotage, what factors cause your self-sabotage behaviors, and they might not be what you think, and some quick little busters that you can use in under five minutes to stop self-sabotage. Oh yeah, and side note, during this interview, my voice is a little extra raspy. I lost it a little bit after a conference, so sorry about that. Hashtag raspy girl problems. Real quick, have you signed up for the morning mind love yet? Sometimes waking up on the right side of the bed can be a little difficult. The morning mind love delivers short messages to your inbox with a thought or a tip to start each day on a positive note. I get messages from people every single day about how the morning mind love is their favorite way to start the day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a really cool booklet of power lists to help you gain clarity and live with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. Hey, Dr. Judy, welcome to Mind Love. Thank you so much for having me on, Melissa. It's really a pleasure. To start out, with all your years being a clinical psychologist, what made you focus your first book on self-sabotage? Well, I think because the phenomenon is so universal, I really see it as something that everybody does from time to time. I mean, most of the times it's not a big deal. You know, we self-sabotage one day or in one event or one situation, and then we get right back on track. But when it becomes a pattern and it stops you from getting the things that you really want in life, that's when I think that it's an issue that needs to be resolved. But I say that it's universal because I believe that self-sabotage is rooted in our biology and our evolutionary history. And so all of us have the propensity to do it, but depending on what's going on, some people might have more of a propensity than others at various times in their lives. It's such a weird phenomenon when you really think about it. I remember when I first started hearing about self-sabotage, I was like, who would do that? But when I really started looking through my life, I would do that so many different times. And so we, it's hard to even picture some of those people who seem really put together like yourself, even engaging in self-sabotage behaviors. So what is your personal experience with self-sabotage? Well, I love this question because people, you know, will say, well, if you say it's universal, then like, when has it happened to you? And how have you seen it in your life? And I think for me, what I really saw, especially in my 20s was in the area of procrastination. And I think that that is a relatable area for many people, because a lot of people, again, even people who seem like they have it together, and they work hard, and they still procrastinate. And there's so many different kinds of reasons why somebody procrastinates. But some common ones are, oh, well, I need the kind of extra boost of motivation so that I can really do a great job on this project. And like, I really need that push at the end, that kind of being a little bit of a fear that really gets me to the next step. But of course, you're always sort of lurking in this weird area because there's 
partially a chance that you might not be able to make it after all or do a good job because time is forward moving, like you may run out of time. And so I think so many people think that the procrastination gives them that extra boost, that extra stress that they need to carry something forward. And and then like one day it doesn't work out. And so for me, a big moment of this was when I was in grad school and I was actually doing extremely well in this class in my first year, everything was going great. And of course, I procrastinate a really big term paper and I, I left only 20 hours to do a 30 page paper. Oh, wow. And I didn't. I mean, I finished it the best that I could, turned it in at like 5.30 a.m. when it was due at 5.30. And a couple of days later, I got a email from my professor saying, come see me. There was no grade on my paper. And so I go into her office and she's like, this is horrible. I couldn't even grade it. <laughs> yeah, it was so bad I couldn't grade it. I mean, that is not only humiliating, but also just thinking back and thinking about how hard I had worked in this class and how I was up until this point, one of her better students, one of her best students, in fact, and that's what she had told me, that I would fall from grace so hard to have one of the best papers in the class to like the next assignment being so bad that she literally could not assign a grade, right? <laughs> it's so crazy. So anyway, I think that that was when I said, you know what? <laughs> I don't think this is working in my life anymore. But I have to say that, you know, throughout college, that was sort of what you did. It's almost like, yeah, I'm going to be that crazy, like just bust my butt at the end, study really hard for three days and take all my finals and like kick butt at all of them. And maybe that worked for a little while. But like, as we get older and as assignments get more complicated, like you can't keep doing that. Yeah. And, you know, I have found in my life, because historically, I'm doing much better now, but there was a long time where self-sabotage was like my number one hobby somehow. So it's interesting because I'll have those excuses. Like, for example, the procrastination like you talked about, I definitely did that. And I would say like, yeah, I like that extra boost of motivation. But really, when I got down to it, it almost seemed like that was a surface level excuse. And there were a lot more deeply rooted issues that were leading to my not doing the best I could, like really even my belief in how successful I thought that I could be. So I'm wondering, is there usually a deeper root or is it usually just, you know, us learning as we go along? Yeah, you know, absolutely. For self-sabotage, there's definitely deeper roots to it. And I think what makes self-sabotage so universal and why there's a biological predisposition is that all human beings have two major drives. And the two major drives are attaining rewards and avoiding threat. And that's the only way that we can individually survive and also survive as a species. And usually those two things kind of work in tandem and they're in balance. You kind of consider both going after rewards and avoiding threat as much as possible. And they kind of work out really well. But sometimes your switch happens where you actually end up prioritizing avoiding threat much more than the attaining rewards part. And threat in our common day is not the saber tooth tiger that might eat you. Threat now is what if I get rejected when I ask somebody out on a date? What if I go and speak in front of the public and they all laugh at me? What if I apply for this job and I don't get it and I get rejected, right? These are the types of things that we're afraid of now. And the more that that threat switch occurs, the less you're likely to get out of self-sabotage because you're always going to be thinking about the potential negative consequences of failing, for example. And I think even more deeper than that, everybody has their own particular brand of why they self-sabotage. And I think one of the ones that 
helped me to sort of devise this plan was really thinking about the fact that everybody's self-sabotage comes down to four factors that I made into an acronym called LIFE. And it stands for the types of things that are underlying factors for why people do this. And so L stands for low or shaky self-esteem. I stands for internalized beliefs, you know, things that we learn from childhood or from watching adults that we look up to. And somehow as we get to be older ourselves, we adopt those beliefs. F is for fear of change or fear of the unknown. And E is for excessive need for control. And so all of those things can veer us towards self-sabotaging more so on certain times of our lives. And so do those things like excessive need for control or fear of change, are those normally based on things that happened in our childhood that scarred us or do they just kind of pop up? How do we develop those personal brands for how we self or how or why we self-sabotage? Well, I definitely think that we are always a combination of all of our experiences. And, you know, we come into this world kind of as a blank slate, ready to learn about the world and how it works. And so a lot of our earlier childhood experiences certainly play a role. And with something like excessive need for control, well, some people will say, well, yeah, people have certain personality traits and some people just need control more than others. Yeah. But like, where does that come from? Like, does that come from the fact that you grew up with pretty controlling parents? Or does it come from the fact that you actually grew up with very permissive parents who weren't controlling about anything? So then you felt like you had to always be the one to put the boundaries down. But for sure, all of our experiences, I think, together will lead us to develop certain factors or certain personality traits or or certain things that become more important to us than maybe they would be to another person. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. So how do we start to undo this cycle of behaviors? Say we keep doing something over and over again, or a certain part of our journey, like the next step for moving forward in our career, or the next step towards building our business, 
And we just always somehow manage to stop ourselves. How do we start to identify those patterns and then reverse them, I guess? Yeah. So first, you know, of course, is the awareness of it. Because sometimes people don't even really seem very aware of their self-sabotage. So the fact that people are starting to pay attention, like that's great. Knowing kind of what your life factors are, that's the first step. And then after that, it's really about understanding the automatic thoughts that trigger a self-sabotaging act. And so when you have a negative feeling or when you do an action that you later regret, sometimes people feel the consequences of those feelings and actions, but they're not thinking about the thoughts that occurred right before they did that action or right before they felt that feeling. And every behavior is preceded by a thought. So if you can identify what that thought was, you can kind of pinpoint the exact time that things veered off course. So for example, if one of your goals is to not self-sabotage your healthful eating and trying to stay away from late night binge snacking, people sometimes will get home and it's late and then they'll reach for the snack and all of a sudden they eat the whole bag of chips and they're like, well, what just happened? But it's not just that the behavior happened, it's that something happened right before the behavior. There was a thought or there was some kind of thing that was in your mind that triggered you to reach for those chips. And so if you can identify what that thought was, whether it's, wow, I'm bored, I might as well eat some chips, or man, I had a really hard day at work, I deserve these chips, right? Whatever that thought was, if you can identify the thought, then we can do something about it. So the first step is to identify the thought before a certain self-sabotaging feeling or behavior. And then the second step is like either changing that thought to a more helpful one, or it's about changing our relationship to the thought. So sometimes the thoughts that we have are really mean. Like we might think things like, I'm never going to succeed, or I'm always going to be a loser. Like things that we might not even say out loud to people, just really mean things about ourselves. But if you can't change the thought itself, then what about changing your relationship to it? And what I tell people is like a thought is a mental event, but it doesn't have to be who you are or what you are. And one really quick tip I give people to change the relationship to their thoughts is a technique called diffusion. And all it means is that you add a tiny little phrase in front of your negative thought. So if your negative thought is, I'm never going to succeed at my career, then just adding this little clause, I'm having the thought that. If you add that in front of the original thought, then that thought becomes, I'm having the thought that I'm never going to succeed at my career. So you can see how it already takes the sails, the wind out of the sails a little bit of that original thought, because you're saying, hey, I'm having a thought that this is happening, but it's not actually happening. It's just a thought that I'm having. That makes perfect sense. I remember when I learned that technique and it was a a different spin on it, but really realizing that I don't have to identify with my thoughts was huge for me because when you don't really know that, like deep down in your soul, then a part of you will always believe that thought. But when you realize that thoughts can just be chemical reactions or patterns of behavior or like just actual habits of thought, then it's so much easier to just watch it float by without attaching this emotion to it. But I'm wondering, a lot of times these patterns of behavior are so deeply rooted. They are so ingrained that it's really hard to make that conscious decision to change it. And an example of this is I had an eating disorder. I suffered from bulimia for over a decade. And I remember really trying for the longest time to change my patterns, to identify the thoughts that were happening right before I would go into a binge purge cycle. But it was like I was automatically in fight or flight. 
And so logic just didn't work for me. And before I knew it, I was like this observer watching myself in like this ultimate pattern of self-sabotage. What do you do when it's a little too strong to control in that way? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. Obviously, these techniques all make sense when you're feeling good and in a good state of mind. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. I can do that. But then sometimes there's like these real moments of distress. And maybe in that moment, you can't just go and change the thought or even the idea of changing your relationship to the thought still feels like too much. So then I feel like this is where we start to really invoke the literature around distress tolerance, right? So distress tolerance is really important. It really focuses on when we are feeling those levels of negative emotion, it's really intense and really severe. And you still need to be able to cope and try to move on and still try to make good decisions from there. It's really about accepting that that's where you are in that moment, but also recognizing that feelings are temporary. They are states, but they're not traits. They're things that kind of are like waves in the ocean. They can come and go. And so when it's kind of difficult or impossible to change your thoughts, then distress tolerance skills can be used to help you cope and survive during a crisis. So in my book, I talk a little bit about a couple of the distress tolerance skills that people sometimes find would be helpful. So it's sort of like turning the mind or using opposite action, smiling anyway, even when you're feeling distressed. It's all these things that take less than 10 seconds to do. The primary literature on distress tolerance is like what's quick and what's not going to engage sort of your cognitive stress even more. And I think that that's a really good place to go if you're feeling like so significantly distressed that it's hard for you to kind of apply maybe what we call like a higher order technique where you actually have to work with your thoughts. That makes sense. I remember being in those low, low patterns and it can just really take a lot of self-esteem away from you because, you know, you're already fighting whatever your self-sabotage behaviors are, then you fall into these patterns and it just can really make you feel like a failure. So I'm curious, what if it was a little bit too late to go into some of these techniques? You've already engaged in the self-sabotage behaviors. How do you respond to yourself afterwards? How do you get yourself out of the slump instead of just feeling like life is never going to get better? Yeah. And I think it's hard when you kind of experience a setback. Oftentimes people will then kind of go to a very black and white place with it, like start to kind of think thoughts like I'm a failure. This is never going to work. And they become very, again, all or none in terms of their thinking. And I think that that's sort of the first step is just recognizing that sometimes after a setback that we have the propensity to kind of go to this place where we feel like nothing's ever going to change and recognizing in that moment that a setback is not a failure. It doesn't have to be, I achieved this goal or I completely and utterly failed at it. I think it's really about reducing the shame that you might have, or even the guilt that you might have that you kind of had a slip up and then reorienting yourself based on your values. So this is a really big part of what I spend the latter part of my book talking about is the fact that as a society, we're so focused on goals. We've got to do lists, We've got vision boards. We've got all these goals that we want to tick off, but what about our values? You know, we don't spend enough time talking about that. And our values are different from our goals because they can really never be checked off. So 
goals are things that once you're done, you're done with them. Like I ran a marathon. Now I can check that off the list. Well, values are what you want your life to stand for. Values are what you want to be remembered by. And you don't ever check them off because it's something that you want to carry with you always. So values are things like community, adventure, learning, honesty, integrity. So all of those types of things, you don't just all of a sudden decide that you're, you've got enough community or you've got enough integrity. You never have to be somebody with integrity anymore. And so I think when you have that sense of failure, reorienting yourself to your most important values and reminding yourself why you're even trying to do this in the first place. Why are you trying to make positive change? And if you can connect that to a value, then it can help you to get back on the right track. It's like, well, it's hard, but because I know that this is a really important value to me, I'm willing to tolerate the stress that's involved in getting back on the horse and trying again. I'm glad you mentioned values. I just last week or two weeks ago, really drilled down my values again. I like to do it every year or so just to, I'm evolving at a really fast pace. I like to really still feel connected. It's not like my values are changing a ton, but sometimes I discover a little bit more since as I discover more about myself over the years. And so I was just drilling down and I realized that my number one value that has carried through my whole life that I didn't necessarily identify before was freedom. Just this idea of freedom. And like I mentioned, I had an eating disorder. And so what started as this feeling of freedom to eat whatever I want with none of the consequences ended up being the least free I've ever felt in my life. Suddenly I was totally controlled by this set of behaviors and it was horrible. And so now I come back to freedom with everything that I do and asking myself that before an upcoming goal or anything like that can be really, really helpful even to narrow down what my next decision is. So I'm wondering, what are the ways that you've found to identify your top values in a way that that is really meaningful for each person? I'm so glad that you do values-based work too and that you revisit it. I think it's just so fun to do. And truly, I think it's very meaningful. And so my favorite way, which I also talk about in the book and give an example of, is the values card sort. And I'm not sure if you've done the values card sort before, but it's really cool. So, you know, obviously there's thousands of values and everybody's values are different, but I kind of came up with 33 of the most common values that people can have. And I put them onto little cards. And so you cut them out and you actually sort through them. So you make three columns in front of you and the left side is going to be your most important, your top 11 values, let's say. And then the middle column is going to be like, values that are moderately important to you. And then the ones on the right are going to be the ones that are less important to you. And then you really focus in on your top five values, let's say, you know, so you look at that leftmost column and you look at the top five values that you put there. And that's how I have people kind of identify what is the most important values to them in this day. But I also sometimes think that it's equally important to look at the bottom five values, you know, so all the way on the right side of the column on the bottom side, like what are the last five values that you have? Again, I think that's important too, because it can also help you to understand maybe what goals are not really as worthwhile for you to pursue. And sometimes once people have done this type of exercise, they'll realize, wow, it's been a while since I've actually done something to nurture my top values. And maybe I've been setting goals that aren't even necessarily touching on my top five values. And no wonder sometimes they feel a little empty even after they've reached the goal or they feel like they've run out of juice or motivation because 
if it's not backed by something more important to that person, it's very easy to kind of like lose track or be like, this is too hard. I'm just going to give up because if it's not tied to something that's crucial to your existence and who you are, why bother with all that distress, right? Yeah, definitely. It makes sense because I've looked at values before. The very first time I ever tried to do a values exercise, at that time in my life, I wasn't very in touch with myself. Most of my behaviors were about distracting from that relationship with myself, including an eating disorder, binge drinking, all the things that all the ways I self-sabotaged in my 20s. And I remember looking at a list of values and it was difficult for me to pick because, I mean, you can't look at a list of values and not think that it would be great to have most of them. You know, it's like an ideal way to live. So I'm like, I can't have 172 values. This doesn't make sense. And so it was really helpful to me to drill down. I looked at the times I was happiest in my life and what those things had in common, the times that I felt least in control or the most distressed and what those things were lacking. And those started to give me a little bit more insight before I could just choose words from a list. So that might be something that's helpful for listeners as well, just to make it a little bit more contextual. Yeah. In my book, I actually talk about the idea of peak moments. And I think we might be talking about kind of a similar concept of reflecting on a memory in your life where you felt like things were going well, and it was a positive memory. It might've even been the, one of the best moments of your life and trying to kind of, like you said, you know, contextualize it more and think about, well, what values were being honored or were centered to this experience. And then going from there, being able to identify more clearly the kind of values that will make you feel fulfilled from the inside. Happiness is such an interesting concept because I think in this day and age, we talk about happiness more so as an absence of negative emotion and the experience of positive emotions. And yet nobody can feel that way all the time. Anything that's meaningful to pursue, whether it's getting a new job, moving to a new city, having children, getting married, it comes with ups and downs. It comes with times that are stressful. It comes with times that are fruitful and wonderful. And really, that's the kind of happiness that I would love people to focus on more is like that happiness that really comes from pursuing things that are meaningful to you. And yet that kind of happiness does carry with it some negative emotions at times. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. 
It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Speaking of peak moments, there's a pattern that I noticed within myself that now that I've become aware of it, it's been happening a little bit less, but I noticed that sometimes when I would have a peak moment where I was really proud of myself, like I just did something great, broke some sort of, accomplished some big goal, it was like I would automatically start to self-sabotage right afterwards. It was almost like coming down from a success high or something and just trying to make myself feel bad. And an example of this was one time I had a week where all these good things were happening. And then all of a sudden I had like two days where I just wanted to like binge drink. <laughs> and I'm wondering, where does that come from? Because when I started sharing that, this was a couple years ago, I got a lot of responses of people saying that they do that same thing. It's like they reached capacity for good in their life and they had to like counteract it. Is that common or have you heard of that happening before? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of um, reasons why I think this happens and it is really common. And it's so cool that you've gotten sort of the feedback that you did that, hey, this is a real thing that happens to people. It feels inexplicable, but yet it is so common, right? And I think one of the ways in which it happens is through this mechanism that we call like the approach avoidance conflict. And it's sort of like the closer you get to a goal, and even when you've just reached it, all of a sudden, like the sort of negatives that are associated with that, like come flooding to you. And like, it makes you actually want to sabotage your progress. Because one really straightforward example that a couple of my clients have actually given me was that they would finally get to their goal weight, for example, you know, they've been trying to lose weight because they were overweight and they were obese. And now they're finally at their healthy weight. Their doctor's like, this looks great. Just keep it where you are. And they reach their goal weight. And then all of a sudden they start binge eating again. And <laughs> it worked so hard, you know, for months at this, right? And they're like, why is that happening? And yet it is such a common phenomenon that we even have like a theory for it called approach avoidance conflict. And I think it's because when you actually get to the goal or get very close to the goal, you start to see all of the negatives that are also associated with that. And so for one of my clients, she was saying, well, I started to think about 
man, like it was so hard to get here. How much harder is it going to be to keep maintaining this progress? And like, that's so much pressure that I almost like didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't want it to be like a little off of the goal so that it wasn't all of this pressure to keep it up. And so it's interesting to kind of like look into the thought process of why that happens. And I think there really is an explanation for it. And I think the other explanation is more tied to things like a shaky self-concept. When you do achieve something good, it's almost like there's a bit of an imposter syndrome that kind of even goes more haywire. And it's like, oh, I don't really deserve all of this good stuff. And then inexplicably and sometimes unconsciously, you sabotage the good things that are happening to you because there's a small part of you that isn't totally sure that you deserve all of it. Oh, I just shared a vulnerable moment on Instagram where I was totally feeling those moments of imposter syndrome. And it was interesting this time, though, because it was one of the first times that I had so much awareness around it that it only lasted a couple of hours. But I was really feeling the effects. And all of a sudden, I sat down and I just thought, I need to meditate because I couldn't come up with solutions at that moment. I was in that moment of distress, like you talked about. So I just kind of got some clarity, sat down, and I started to realize that, Part of me was feeling this fear of living up to expectations that I had created myself. Like, what if I am not able to maintain the success? So I totally relate to that example with the weight, only it was with business. I thought, well, what if I get really big and then all of a sudden all these people see me and they start and I just can't keep up with it. Like it's too much of a workload or whatever it was. And I quickly realized that I had to come back to my own self-worth, realize that we're all created on this equal plane. And it's just up to us to kind of realize how magical we really are in order to break free of that. So what are your tips for boosting your self-worth a little bit when you're feeling like, maybe I can't handle this, or maybe I don't deserve this? Yeah, so hard. You know, self-concept and self-esteem work is hard to do because sometimes you feel like it can be very momentary. And then maybe you feel like you've made progress. And then one day you have a bad day and like all of those feelings come flooding back. And I think it really has to be about where does your self-worth come from? And I think for people, it comes from different places. But like one common place that it comes from is based on the reactions of others, based on how others are treating you and what they're telling you. And of course, that makes sense because we are social creatures. We need that social feedback. We need the community. But if it's taken too far to the extreme, then like one day, if you don't get a compliment or don't get an accolade from someone, or if you, you know, like anybody else might have made a mistake and then all of a sudden get a little reprimanded by your supervisor or your boss, then you feel like you're in the dumps. And I think when your self-worth is tied to what other people are giving you, it's much more vulnerable to sort of these episodic attacks. And so I think really the goal is to try to start building your self-concept from an internal place. Who you are and what you're worth is separate and completely devoid of your achievements that all of us have value just by being ourselves. And even with our mistakes and our baggage and our problems, we all have worth, right? And it's a tough concept in this day and age, I think, to try to understand because everybody sort of treats your achievements and your accomplishments. And my gosh, even your social media followers and the number of people who follow you as a currency. (laughs) So it's hard. It's kind of like very countercultural to try to get from a more internal place. But I think things like really spending time reflecting on who you are outside of what you give and what you do 
What are the things that really drive you? What about, again, going back to values? Like, what are the things that are valuable to you? Well, those things make you what you are. And those things are what makes you a wonderful and worthwhile person, not what you achieve, right? And so it's like, well, I'm a person who really values integrity and community and adventure. Okay, well, your self-worth should come from those things and not from whether or not somebody compliments you today on your work or whether or not somebody likes your posts, right? It's it's hard, but it's really kind of like completely going countercultural and looking inward for building that self-concept over time so that it can be stable to any kind of things that happen on a day-to-day basis because stress is going to happen. You're going to get into arguments with people. Things might not always go that well. And yet you have a concept of yourself that's whole. I love that. And for me, it's been so, so helpful to like collect evidence basically in the real world for my own worth. And so I do that by tracking my wins and tracking my progress. I think because of that negativity bias we have in the brain, sometimes it's just so easy if we're not consciously focusing on it to go through our week and think that nothing good happened. But when you start to acknowledge yourself for even something as small as, I made this person feel good this day. I did this with my business. I got praise for this, or maybe not, maybe praise isn't the right way because it's kind of reflected off of somebody else, but really whatever it takes to build yourself up and start collecting evidence for that. But I'm curious too, when it comes to that reflection from other people, because it's really hard to avoid that. As much as we do this work in ourselves, if we're being told by the people around us every day that we're not smart, it's going to be really hard to ever believe that we're smart. And I found that in my younger years, I used to surround myself with people that were never really going to give me a lot of positive feedback. And it's really funny because I was doing some research on you for this interview. And so I was Googling your name and going to news sources. And I found that you commented on this story, or you were one of the sources for a story on Chris Watts, the guy who killed his wife and children. And it was all about how he is in jail right now, getting a bunch of love letters from people saying like, oh my gosh, I want to be with you. And I thought to myself, is that not the ultimate form of self-sabotage? You're literally finding somebody who has evidence to be a killer of the people he loved and you're wanting to be with them. Why do people do that? Right. Isn't that insane? I mean, to me, it's also like so much of even criminals are being glamorized these days because the media is featuring them. And that you're right, that is like an ultimate form of self-sabotage. But I do find, and this there's actually research on this, which is disturbing, that individuals who gravitate, because there is a large group of individuals who do gravitate towards criminals, write them love letters, sometimes even marry them eventually. Like, why do people do that? And sadly, for a lot of these people, there is a background of previous very like abusive relationships or instances where they have talked openly about their very low self-esteem. So it's almost like, yeah, one, maybe I don't deserve better than this, but two, maybe I'll luck out and I'll actually be able to change this man. And that's going to make me feel so good about myself that I could change somebody who society had given up on. And so I think that that is sort of what we're talking about here is like trying to bolster your self-esteem from external sources. And instead of having your self-esteem rely on other people and their reactions to you, try to have your self-esteem be built day by day from a place of what are you really contributing in terms of your worth in a more of a spiritual and like a holistic way and not so much a 
something that I can check off of a to-do list and kind of like a dream list of things of like, well, if I got the attention of this person, and if I got this job, then like, I would feel so much better about myself because that is all still external, even though it's not bad to have goals. It's just that all of that external stuff, you can't have control over that. And if you rely on that for your self-esteem, then there are going to be some days that it's going to be really hard for you to focus on good self-esteem. Yeah, I can relate to that. I had one of those relationships that was just terrible for me. And he, yes, he ended up in jail right after our relationship for the next seven years. And it was interesting because I've recently gotten messages from him and turns out somehow he got engaged while in jail. So (laughs) I, I feel like I have this like personal experience with that. And it's just so crazy. And when I was really diving into my thought process of why did I like this person or think I liked this person, think I loved this person when everybody around me could see that he was toxic. And part of what that came down to for me was I resonated with the words you said about loving this person that everybody else in society has given up on. And I think that there was a part of me that was so lonely or had felt that other people had kind of abandoned me in one way or another for so long that I thought, well, if I could love this person that society has given up on, then he won't have anyone else to turn to because society's given up on him. He's more likely to stay around. And one of my close friends was going through that same thing too. So it's just so, so interesting what we'll do in those moments of desperation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's so common when you see that sometimes you look at someone and you say, wow, like, why is this person with this person? Doesn't even make any sense. Or Why would they be interested in them? And I think that is exactly what we've been talking about, this idea of, oh, well, if society has given up on them, then perhaps they have less options and they won't leave me. And then I can feel safe in that particular way. But then maybe in so many other ways, you aren't safe or maybe you aren't being challenged or at least the relationship isn't very fulfilling for a variety of reasons because of that choice that we made. So how much of these beliefs about ourselves become just basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if I deep down internally believe that I am not worthy of love, I know a lot of people think, well, then when you find someone who loves you, those beliefs will change. But I tend to think that it might be the other way around, that you have to change your belief before you can change the outcome. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree with you. I think that If in the case of you don't know if you believe that you deserve love and you find somebody who loves you, it's not so simple as, okay, now I believe in love and now I believe I'm lovable. No, because we are creatures of habit and we look to confirm our existing beliefs more so than we do make room for new things that could actually challenge our beliefs. So because we have this predisposition to really kind of just accommodate new information into our existing frameworks, when somebody actually acts like they love us and internally we believe that we don't deserve that love, we are going to become very suspicious. We're going to say, what do they want really? And and when's the other ball going to drop? And if they really knew who I was, maybe they wouldn't love me. And then so because of those types of thoughts, you will then act in a number of ways that ends up sabotaging the relationship and its progress because you might overly question the person or pick a fight for no reason to see if they really can prove that they will love you and they will stay with you, even if you're being difficult. And over time, it actually does cause all of these reactions that cascade into really negative outcomes generally 
for that particular relationship. And then of course, once that relationship meets its demise, then you can confirm that negative belief again. Like, see, I knew it. I knew I wasn't lovable because he left. And yet there were things that you did to maybe cause that to happen. Yeah, I've totally been there. It's like in a relationship, especially relationships are just such easy examples because I think sometimes we don't have as much awareness around our behaviors when we're just by ourselves. But when I got married, all of a sudden I'm realizing all these different patterns that I have because I have somebody there all the time to kind of reflect it back to me or to be witness to these things that I used to just let pass by. But I remember this one relationship in particular, and it was the one immediately after that really toxic one where he ended up in jail. And I would just poke him, like not physically, well, sometimes physically, but I would just like kind of cause these little fights because it was almost like I was testing if he loved me enough to stick around for those. And if he did fall for my little tests and I don't know, go home or get an argument back, I'd be like, yep, there it is. I knew you didn't love me (laughs) or whatever it was. So I totally relate to that. I'm curious when it comes to work though, burnout. Burnout is such a weird thing because I feel like it's a combination of actual physical stress symptoms, but also it almost causes a cycle of self-sabotage a lot of times. Does burnout fall under that self-sabotage umbrella? And what do we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, burnout is so interesting because we've been talking about it more and more. And the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases, is starting to designate it as a significant problem that we need to address. And burnout, the state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion that's caused by excessive and prolonged stress, especially at work, is really becoming not only more common, but also synonymous with certain depression symptoms. And so when we see that, we realize that these individuals, they need to kind of take a break and they need to take care of themselves. But sometimes people burn themselves out because of some of these underlying factors that we earlier discussed, you know, these life factors. So for example, you may burn yourself out working your nose to the grind and and just working yourself to death because you might actually struggle with some low self-concept and maybe career and achievements in your career is one of the ways in which you try to attain some kind of self-esteem. And so you can't stop because the minute you stop, who are you and what is your worth? And so you keep going, even though you really need to stop. And then for example, it could also be a factor if it's excessive need for control. Like If it's an excessive need for control, it can clearly lead to burnout because you're not going to delegate to anyone. You want to make sure that you've got your hands and everything and you don't trust that anybody else is going to be able to do what you do. And so I think some of these things that cause self-sabotage in other areas of life can absolutely relate to causing and maintaining burnout for a lot of professionals. What's interesting to me, you said that burnout is now considered a disease. And I know how helpful it can be when something is acknowledged or validated that we're going through. Like when you find that there's a name for whatever symptoms you're experiencing. But at the same time, what I also have noticed is that sometimes when there's a name for something, we kind of go into hypochondriac mode or whatever, where we're like, oh, suddenly I think I have something that you might not have had. A good example of this is for a long time, I thought I had ADD. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I think I cleared it up with diet, but not until I was already on Adderall for a good decade of my life. And it was almost just like 
I identified into this groupthink mentality. And I've talked to somebody else about this who felt the same thing with depression. It was like, yes, they were experiencing some symptoms. But then once they started saying, I am a person with depression, I have depression, it became even harder for them to come out of it because they got so used to identifying with that. How do we find that balance of you know, not overly identifying with some of these things that we're going through so that it doesn't become who we are for the rest of our lives? It's a really good question because like you said, sometimes you feel vindicated or at least validated when there is a diagnosis. Like, okay, it wasn't just in my head. There's a way to explain this and other people are are also suffering with this. But also if you over-identify, then you're pathologizing the problem and you're pathologizing yourself. And so I think that I always want to help people remember that a label is only helpful in understanding a construct. It's helpful for understanding an idea, but that label is not you and you are not now a depressed person for life. That is not the constellation of who you are. It is a state that characterizes a specific time in your life. And it's something that we can actively work on. It's something that's external to you though. So I think I try to encourage people to not think of it as a internal sort of, okay, now this is who I am. This is part of my identity, but more as like an external thing that is outside of them. And it's like a problem that they have to solve. And then once they solve the problem, then that no longer has to be in sort of the realm of their everyday experience. And so I really encourage people to think of those as states and things that, again, that they can problem solve with them being a person and this being a problem that is separate of them as a person. I love that point. I think that's really important because, again, it just comes back to For me, it's so important to only identify with things that are empowering. I am very careful about what I will say after I am. So instead of I am depressed or I have ADD, it's like I am experiencing this right now. (laughs) And that can just be really helpful in the way we think of ourselves because I think the way we experience ourselves really determines the way we experience our lives and the world. And so be really careful about what you put after that. And I'd love to end this episode with maybe some really actionable things that people can do. If we have identified those self-sabotage triggers, what are some things that we could do in those moments to either deactivate those triggers or kind of divert into a new cycle of behaviors? Absolutely. You know, I think that the biggest thing is to recognize what you're doing the minute that it's happening and to try to find a helpful replacement behavior. And so whatever behavior that is leading you down self-sabotage, once you've identified what it is, make up these series of if-then statements. And so there's a fancy name for them called implementation intentions, but all that it really is, is a series of if-then statements that really help you to understand how to deactivate self-sabotage when it happens in the moment. So before you actually even get to a point where you are self-sabotaging, you sit down and you think through the barriers to whatever goal it is that you have. So for example, if your goal is in the area of getting a more fulfilling job. And you think about the barriers to that and you think, okay, well, part of the barrier is my own fear. Like I don't want to leave this job because it's comfortable. And what if I leave the job and I can't find a job for a while, or maybe the next job is also not very fulfilling. Then what am I going to do? So you sit there and you kind of list out the things that are kind of getting in the way of you getting to that goal. And then for each of the barriers that you listed, you write a series of if then statements like, If I start to feel fear and chicken out, then I'm going to call a friend and have them sit with me while I put my new resume together. You know, so you come up with these sort of like series of very actionable things like 
if I start to talk myself out of going to this interview, then I'm going to read some self-affirming statements, look over some of the exercises I've already done in this area, do a mindfulness activity to try to regroup, take 10 deep breaths, like whatever you do to try to reset yourself. And so when you have these if-then statements at the ready, what helps in the moment is that when you're already stressed, it's harder to make good and logical and helpful decisions. But if you have these if-then statements already planned out, then as a barrier comes up, you just go to that statement and you just do the things that it says. So it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it, and it doesn't take a lot of executive functioning or self-control or impulse control, which is so hard to do in the moment when you're already feeling distressed. I love that. I totally agree, too, where that activity might be good to do when you're experiencing the trigger, yes, but also when we're completely out of it. Because I use what I call my power lists. And they're basically (laughs) things that I list out that are those replacement type behaviors or those empowering thoughts when I'm actually in an empowered mindset. Because when we're in those low moments, it's hard to think of things that aren't low thoughts. We're in this emotional state. So to have those things listed out, the if-then behavior replacements, when you are in a higher level state, it's almost like your little toolbox to be able to access your higher level state of mind, even when you can't really get that on a physical level. So thank you so much for everything that you shared today. And let listeners know where's the best place to connect with you and a little bit about your book that's coming out next week. Absolutely. So my book is called Stop Self-Sabotage. It's being published by HarperCollins and it'll be available everywhere where books are sold, including Amazon, Barnes and Noble and a variety of different online retailers. There's also a audiobook and there's also an ebook. So whatever format that you're looking for, pick it up there. You can connect with me. I would love to hear from you and hear how self-sabotage has affected you and what's worked for you at my Twitter and my Instagram handle, which is at Dr. Judy Ho, D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. Or you can check me out at my website, drjudyho.com. All of the links mentioned in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 093. And there's also links and descriptions of all of our amazing sponsors. So be sure to support those if you want to support the show. The other best way to support the show is by sharing this episode. Who do you know that self-sabotages or that's struggling with a bad relationship or dating the wrong people or doing the little things that get in their own way? Share this episode or share it on social media. Take a screenshot and tag Mind Love Melissa or Mind Love Podcast. I'm also really curious to know the ways that you guys self-sabotage. I know for a long time, I felt alone in that. And it wasn't until I started reading literature and talking to other people and hearing the ways that they were doing it themselves, even some of the badass people that I know that seem to have everything together, they all have those little ways that they get in their own way. So let's share it with each other. Let's help each other out a little bit, feel less alone. When we're dealing with these things on our own, and we don't know if other people are sharing these same experiences or sharing these same feelings, that's when it's so easy to really identify with those behaviors or those feelings. And as you've heard in so many different episodes, we are not our feelings. And you know, 
we don't even really need to be our behavior either. We all develop these little patterns of thoughts, of emotion, whatever it might be. But the more we identify with those things and think that they're who we are, the harder it is to get out of. We're driven so much by our self-beliefs, by what we believe we're capable of, by what we believe we are worth, by those things that we proceed after saying, I am, I am a screw up, I am lazy, I am a procrastinator. The more you say those things and feel that they are you, the more likely you are to do them and continue to do them. But that little bit of awareness and that little bit of shared experience with other people is what allows us to carve a new path. So again, don't forget to share the episode. And if you haven't subscribed already, hit that little subscribe button. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for...